I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Thirty on Wednesday, November 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a closer look at the public hanging comment made by a Senate candidate. For someone who hopes to represent all of the people of Mississippi, this is not a statement that particularly does a good job of uniting support from all of the people of Mississippi. Then we'll learn about issues that voting absentee could pose for Mississippians and find out what you can do to combat the diabetes epidemic during this Awareness Month. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Mississippi senator's comments have drawn outrage from some and continued support from others. While attending an event in Tupelo on Friday, November 2nd, Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith said about a supporter, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. Hyde-Smith's remarks drew criticism from her opponent in the November 27th runoff election. Democrat Mike Espy and civil rights groups in in a written statement, Hyde-Smith says it was an exact exaggerated expression of regard. University of Alabama professor Paul Reed is an expert in Southern dialect. In a discussion on the origin and use of the phrase, he tells MPB's Desiree Frazier use of the term public hanging was more prevalent during certain historical periods. It's a term that I heard a couple of times as a young boy, so growing up in the uh, early to mid-80s, but it's not something that I've heard for more recently. Um, Yesterday, I was just uh, interested in sort of did some searching and so um, wasn't able to find that particular phrase, the invite to a public hanging, but I was able to find evidence of just the term public hanging and seeing that that occurred sporadically in the written record uh, via Google engrams um, starting in about the 1840s, and it sort of appeared sporadically. There was a spike um, in the, uh, the period just after the Civil War in the 1860s and 1870s, and then it sort of tails off again. And then it increases um, quite dramatically, um, that particular phrase, public hanging, from the 1920s into the 1960s. So you can see it sort of parallels racial violence, um, you know, obviously in the period of, during Reconstruction, uh, and then also, again, in the, uh, from the you know, early to mid-20th uh, century, where you're seeing that phrase occur. Uh, and again, it wasn't the exact phrase invite to a public hanging, but it was the, uh, the phrase public hanging. And of course, you can see the clear connection between that phrase and racial violence in, um, you know, that was happening ac- across the United States, and in particularly uh, in the, the American South. Was that the case when you looked back 
back and found that phrase "public hanging" in the 1800s? Was that the same connotation? Um, I, that that's harder to harder to say because some of those sources I wasn't able to see. Um, but it, it's definitely you know looking at where it would probably would have occurred is the connection either that there was you know some uh, public execution or also a lynching. That's typically where you see that phrase uh, when it occurs. And usually this, when you're looking back, you're finding that in sometimes in um, uh, newspapers and other things where you're seeing that, like a report about what happened. And so, again, that's, that's sort of the connection that that term tends to have. And have you seen it in any other way that does not have a connection with a lynching? When I heard it as a young boy, this was in East Tennessee, again, in the, in the, in the mid to late 80s, that was not the connection, but it was one of those that it was someone that someone thought highly of, um, and again, so highly they would go to something that they might not want to do. Um, so obviously in that particular time period, there was not um, the same um, racial violence that was happening um, you know, in, earlier, uh, in earlier eras and, and you know, even just two decades earlier. But because of that clear connection to lynching and racial violence, it's definitely something that has fallen quite out of favor. So it's the term that we as linguists, we, we talk about sort of the denotative meaning and the connotative meaning. So the denotative meaning is the literal meaning of a phrase, but the connotative meaning is what sort of comes along with that. So if I say Hollywood, for example, that's literally an area of Los Angeles, but we know that that also connotes or sort of brings other images along about glitz and glamour and movies and things like that. So when you use a phrase, you know, there are various layers of meaning. And so when you use a phrase like public hanging, there are layers of meaning. And when you look to idioms like this, there is sort of the literal meaning of someone that you think very highly of. But at the same time, there's also the additional layers of meaning that do come along. And sometimes those are accidental. You may not have necessarily fully meant that, but those additional layers of meanings might come along with it. And so when you say something like public hanging, it, it, there is the, the, the additional layers that go directly to things like lynchings and, and racial violence. You know, that might not have been how she you know, intended the phrase to be used, but because of those um, connotations, those connections to other uh, meanings and images, it's something that um, we need to be aware of. And, and you know, it's something we need to all be aware of those um, types of things in our speech. You know, sometimes, you know, use, for example, going back to my example, you know, they say Hollywood, and it may, you know, they may be referring to the glitz and the glamour, or they may be using Hollywood as sort of a place of decadence and, and, uh, and sort of fakeness or something like that. And so there are those various layers of meanings that we use and sort of recognize, and so sometimes we need to be very aware of those when we use speech, especially, you know, someone that's in the public sphere. Professor Paul Reed with the University of Alabama, we thank you so much for sharing your insights on this issue with us. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for just the opportunity to, uh, to speak. Jackson State University history professor Robert Luckett says for many, the use of the words is appalling. He tells our Desiree Frazier, Mississippi leads the nation in known lynchings. Especially in a place like Mississippi, with the history that it has had here, comments like that are extremely hurtful to many people. Uh, in particular, when you consider the role that public hanging um, played and, and public murder in general through much of our history in the institution of Jim Crow, through lynching in particular, 
the Equal Justice Initiative has done research in this regard, and its third edition of its report on lynching in America shows that Mississippi led the nation in the total number of known lynchings. There was 654 between the years 1877 and 1950. That's a known lynching every six weeks for 73 years in the state of Mississippi. So to make casual passing reference to a public hanging has a lot deeper significance here than just some kind of off-the-cuff remark, especially for African-Americans in the state who comprise 37, 38% of the state, and for a long time were the majority of the state population. So uh, it's particularly uh, insensitive and appalling for, for many people because of those reasons. For those who don't see it as appalling, can you share why they may not feel that way? I think the people who don't see this as, uh, as particularly appalling or see it as not a big deal haven't lived with the history of discrimination and its continued impact today. Um, a lot of people have the privilege not to have to think about or to deal with racism or discrimination at all simply due to their own privilege, often of being um, middle, upper class, and frequently white, to be frank. And so uh, some empathy for the experiences of African Americans uh, who not that long ago faced certain death for even the most minor of uh, supposed infractions against the white power system, uh, like trying to vote. But even more recently, um, things like the murder of James Craig Anderson on Ellis Avenue by a group of white teenagers, you know, who someone was teaching them that it's, you know, okay to, for fun to come into Jackson and look for people who you believe look indigent or homeless and, and beat them up and even murder them. The fact that that is being taught to young people in Mississippi today should give us some pause, not just um, from a historic standpoint of the history of lynching in Mississippi, but from a modern standpoint that this is very real today for many people. Um, And I think it just requires a little bit of empathy for folks to understand that this could be particularly offensive. You really don't hear that term used that much. But is it possible that in some quarters this term is used and the greater population just doesn't hear it a lot? The only places that I can imagine it's possible where you hear terminology like that is in places particularly where you hear worse terminology. And if that's acceptable acceptable phrasing to be said in public, there's probably much worse that's said in private. Uh, and so it seems to me that if you're in a culture that normalizes saying things like that, especially in a state like Mississippi, your private normal is probably much worse, at least the likelihood of that is. So, you know, I would hope that um, Senator Hyde-Smith would understand that this was damaging and hurtful to a lot of people in the state for all of those reasons. Professor Robert Luckett with Jackson State University. Thanks so much. Glad to do it. Senator Hyde-Smith has refused to speak publicly about her remarks. Let us know what you think about a story or send us a news tip by visiting MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. Coming up, we'll learn about issues that voting absentee could pose for Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Running a business requires smart decisions every day. Make a good decision for your company today and reach MPB listeners through MPB program underwriting. For more information, go to mpbonline.org underwriting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians are now voting by absentee ballot in the U.S. Senate runoff between Cindy Hyde-Smith and Mike Espy. But some say the quick turnaround is difficult for those traveling during the holidays or living out of state. Senator David Blunt of Jackson tells MPB's Ashley Norwood timing and regulations both play a part. It's a very important runoff election coming up on Tuesday, November the 27th. And that election is after Thanksgiving. Uh, in addition to that, the first election uh, has not yet been officially certified. So it's a very tight window. Uh, it's a tight window, uh, and it's made even tighter by the fact that most offices will be closed for Thanksgiving and the Friday after Thanksgiving, and many families will be traveling for the holidays. So uh, if you are going to be out of town on November the 27th, you really need to plan ahead so you can vote absentee. When you say not officially certified, kind of explain that and how that might affect the upcoming runoff. Some counties are still counting affidavit ballots or are waiting to verify uh, ballots that may come in late from voters who did not have an ID at the polling place. They can come in later and show their ID. So the deadline to certify the election is this Friday, which is six days before Thanksgiving. So uh, it's possible it could be certified earlier, but it, it may not be certified until later this week. So the, the window uh, for voting absentee is very small. So if I wanted to vote absentee in the runoff, what's the deadline for me to request that ballot? Well, if you want to vote absentee in person, and I would recommend that, if you know you're going to be out of town on Tuesday the 27th, uh, what I would recommend is call your county circuit clerk and ask if absentee balloting has begun. And then when it has begun, I would go down to the courthouse and do it. This process by mail is especially onerous. And in some cases, if you're out of state, virtually impossible. Uh, I filed legislation this past session to improve the absentee voting process for college students. And I'm gonna be filing that again next year. But to vote absentee by mail, when you uh, consider uh, the holidays involved and that a notary public is required under current state law, uh, and that ballot has to be received by the Monday before the election, uh, it's virtually impossible. Uh, the process needs to be streamlined. You got some college students who, in that situation, are forced to pay overnight fees, which can range from who knows how much, depending on where they're mailing from. And some people may not be yes. able to afford that. So kind of talk about how that can also be an issue. As I said, I have filed legislation and will file it again to improve the process for college students. Uh, my daughter is a college student at a college outside of Mississippi. She has to pay $5 where she lives to get a document notarized. So, in other words, if she was going to vote in the election and in the runoff election, she's going to pay $20 in notary fees plus whatever postage is required. And uh, she may end up having to trying to find a notary on the Friday after Thanksgiving, which is going to be very difficult. Uh, and it's just a, it's a process that we can, that we can change and make it more efficient. 
Is there anything else you would like to add or, or that um, folks who either in state or out of state um, who need to vote uh, should know? Sure. Well, the first thing I would do is I would encourage everybody to go vote on Tuesday, November the 27th. Uh, secondly, if you think you're going to be out of town on Tuesday, November the 27th, you need to think ahead and make a plan on how you're going to vote absentee. Don't wait to the last weekend after Thanksgiving. Uh, go ahead and make a plan now and call your circuit clerk. Uh, and thirdly, support legislation that will make uh, the absentee voting process uh, easier for these runoff elections. Senator David Blunt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Carcia Carson of Terry is a graduate student at Vanderbilt University. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood about the challenges she faced her first time voting absentee from Tennessee. So originally I got online um, to see if I could get an absentee ballot sent to me. And I found out that Mississippi doesn't do third party um, like ballot applications. Like you have to go through Mississippi or call Mississippi for you to do that. Like you can't go through the online services. And so I ended up having to call the clerk's office in Mississippi for them to send me an application, which was also kind of weird because a lot of people were saying that they've never heard of a state asking for an application for the ballot. Usually you just call and you get the ballot. But Mississippi requires you to actually fill out an application. So I got the application. It maybe took um, maybe three to five days um, after I talked to the person on the phone for me to actually receive the application in the mail. Once I received that, it was, uh, you know, pretty simple. I filled it out. I sent it back. And that was like a month before I actually got my ballot. And I was kind of concerned. I was worried because the day to vote was actually coming up. So I ended up calling, I think, on a Wednesday. I called to, you know, ask, like, are you guys going to send me the ballot? I, put the, I sent the application back like a month ago. And they said, yes, you know, we're working on it. So that Friday, which was two days later after I called that Wednesday, I received the ballot in the mail but voting was that Monday, I mean, that Tuesday. So that Friday, I didn't, I didn't receive it until like after five o'clock when I got off work, you know, left school and everything. So I got home and I filled it out and I ended up overnighting it on Monday. So I had to pay $24 to overnight it so that I can make sure it would, get, it would get there on Tuesday. And then also there was a section, if you weren't, I want to say if you weren't disabled, they wanted you to actually get it notarized. So I ended up having to get it notarized, but thankfully I had a notary right here on campus, so that wasn't too, you know, too big of a hassle. But I think that for people who don't have, you know, notaries that are just within arm's reach, I feel like that could be kind of a a, a burden on someone to try to, you know, send in an to send in an absentee ballot. So that's what happened. Yeah. Now for this upcoming runoff election, I'll be in Mississippi the week, you know, for Thanksgiving. So I'm hoping they allow me to do a early, you know, to vote early since I'll be coming back before the Tuesday election. Or are you going to just go ahead and vote in person absentee? Yes, if they allow me to vote early because I'll be in town, but I'm, I won't be there that Tuesday. So I'm hoping that they allow me to vote early for the runoff election. If that's the case, then I'll do that. If not, then I have no idea what I need to do. I, if that's the case, I probably need to send an, I, I probably need to be going through the process of getting an application again. Carcia Carson, a student at Vanderbilt University, um, also a native of Mississippi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Local circuit clerk offices are open Monday through Friday and also on Saturday. Coming up, find out what you could do to combat the diabetes epidemic during this Awareness Month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
MPB would like to thank Daniel, Coker, Horton, and Bell and the Mississippi Healthcare Alliance for underwriting MPB programs. Your company can be an underwriter, too. Find out more. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting to find out how. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Roughly 17% of Mississippians are living with diabetes. That's according to the American Diabetes Association. The advocacy organization is raising awareness all month with the theme, Everyday Reality. They say diabetes impacts nearly every daily decision, from what to eat, where, and do, to other decisions about how to take care of oneself. Tracy Brown is CEO of the American Diabetes Association, She says, despite growing numbers, diabetes management is often misunderstood. She tells us how they're working to change that. What we're really trying to do with this month and this Everyday Reality campaign in general is to ignite a national conversation, a statewide conversation, a community conversation around diabetes, driving up awareness, driving up the sense of urgency, educating people. And part of how we're doing that is sharing the stories from people who are living with diabetes around what their everyday reality is in terms of living with diabetes. From the moment they get up to the 1,000 decisions that they're making during the day to the time they go to bed. Are we talking strictly type 2 diabetes? No, we are not. Uh, We are talking all diabetes, type 1, type 2. This is the biggest health epidemic of our time, right? When you think about the numbers, they're staggering. With over 30 million Americans living with diabetes, 84 million Americans living with prediabetes. And then if we want to get it a little closer to home um, with Mississippi, There's over 400,000 people in Mississippi living with diabetes. Karen, that's about 17% of the adult population there. And when we talk about pre-diabetes, that's 810,000 people, almost 40% of the adult population. This is a big deal. All people, all forms of diabetes, we need to find a way to stop this epidemic. In Mississippi, what is the main reason why someone is either diabetic or has prediabetes? Here is what we know um, for certain, Karen. If you have type 1 diabetes, that means your pancreas does not produce insulin. So you will be insulin dependent. If you have type 2 diabetes, your pancreas doesn't produce enough insulin. So you will either be on insulin or a pill form, or you can manage the diabetes. But there's a lot of miseducation. There's a lot of um, stigma. Uh, You have to have the gene. Um, Your gene can be triggered by a lot of things, but it doesn't discriminate. There is no one type of person or individual who can have diabetes. Is there a shortened lifespan when one has diabetes? This is often surprising to people. There are 228 people a day who die from diabetes and its complications. That's one person every six and a half minutes. Diabetes is considered 
the silent killer or the invisible disease because of the level of complications. Someone living with diabetes has a stroke every two minutes. Someone is diagnosed with heart disease every 80 seconds. And there is someone living with diabetes having kidney failure every 10 minutes. So what I say is you can continue to thrive while living with diabetes, not just exist, not just live, but thrive while we fight to find a cure. Because those living with diabetes, I've been living with diabetes for 15 years myself. You are empowered. There are things that you can take control of to help you manage this disease so that you don't succumb. Where can people find information that would help them fight the disease to know what to do? Go take the risk test. Go to diabetes.org slash everyday. It's a short, simple test. will only take a few minutes. But this will tell you whether you are at risk for diabetes. That knowledge is empowering because then you can go do something about it. Know your numbers. Two, I want people to know these facts that we've talked about. The level of urgency and the awareness around stopping this disease isn't there. So know the facts and talk about it. Tracy Brown is the CEO of the American Diabetes Association. Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. A tech- 